0: Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic Mobile app.
1: You are listening to TNR with EWC on RFB, Radio Free, Brooklyn. Welcome to episode two hundred and forty-six of Troubadours and Rock On Tours, with yours truly, EW Conundrum Demure, and this week's episode. We have critically acclaimed writer, journalist, and National Magazine Award winner, John Marchese. We talk with John about his two books, Renovations and The Violin Maker. We also talk about his writing for the New York Times and the Philadelphia Magazine, his process, how he picks his Focus areas. We talk about the violin and we talk about reconnecting the father and son relationship through renovating a house, among other things. It's a very, very good conversation today with writer John Marchese. We also have an EW essay by yours truly titled Louis and Al. We have an Uncle Cesare installment by our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, titled The Globe. And we have a poem titled Chestnut. And as is always the case, all of this is infused by several great tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 246 of Troubadours and Raconteurs.
2: Start. And i love you over and over and over again Just give me some time
1: Louis and Al. Is Louis C.K. a martyr, a barterer, a marauder? Why should we care at all what he does when the sun falls, as we spin and tilt on our axis, laying back on our asses, as his shaft bemused and ill-gottenly festooned in an air of aroused dominance and exhibitionism to reach orgasmic depths while they witness? as part of the act, or asking for permission, or inviting an individual to an event that is weird with one of a non-intimate connection. Is it an impulse allowed to actualize because of the sense that you have power? Would it still occur if the power was not there simply because of an uncontrolled, really strong desire? It seems for many of us males that our sense of entitlement and normal house of privilege is coming down. Are our species' natural ways stemming back to ancient days, coming into a more evolved sort of scrutiny? Is the support genuinely steeped in morality and ethical reflection? Or is it instead a forced defection and mutiny. Are we willing, able, to shift or turn upside down, inside out? What are you talking about? Poof! Magic wand in hand, soul, spirit, animal instinct, cultural teaching, and intellectual fancy dance. Why do so many people have a problem keeping it in their pants?
3: Well, I'm a crazy mixed up kid, and I love to dance like this. Well, I love to rock and roll, because it satisfies my soul. Off of my feet. I don't care what you heard. This is a crazy mixed up work. Crazy mixed up work. Crazy mixed up work. Crazy mixed up work. I'm in a crazy mixed up work.
1: John Marques, is this you? Yes, it is. All right. Thank you so much. This is E.W. Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And uh, before we get started, I'd like to give the folks listening a little background, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. John Marques, and I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly.
4: Well, it, I'll, I, I say Marquesi, but uh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, Marquesi, that's the way I would say it, actually. I have, there, there are some Marqueses as they say it in, in my hometown, that's what I went by, but Italian... It's my
4: hometown, too, and that's how I grew up, the name Marquez, but I had to change it later when I moved away, and people said, that's not how you pronounce your name.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're on the same page. Well, Mr. Marquez is uh, a writer, a musician, an award-winning journalist. Actually, he's won the National Magazine Award. He's uh, an acry- a critically acclaimed novelist as well. He has two novels renovations and the violin maker that we're going to talk about a bit and uh, he lives between narrowsburg new york and new york city nice to have you on the program
4: thank you good to be here
1: so let's let's get started with uh the musician part and then we'll get into the writing part because i didn't read a lot about in the bio and i don't know much about you as a musician i do know a bit about you as a writer so how about the musician part of your life
4: well, I have to say, my the musician part of my life is a very undistinguished story, but uh, I spent oh, about 20 years as a professional musician, but a real work-a-day type player. I, I, I went to music school for a while, went back to music school for a while, uh, lived in Philadelphia, studied there, and worked in a wide variety of just real workman-like Musical situations, everything from I used to play the Ringling Brothers Circus when it came to town. I would play operas, uh, big bands, uh, Latin salsa bands, little jazz groups, you know, whatever whatever came up.
1: What instruments?
4: I'm a trumpet player and uh, played a little bit of piano, uh, like jazz piano, which is my avocation. Really, I never took a piano lesson.
1: (laughs) So you play by ear.
4: Uh, not by ear. I can read music. Uh, I I cannot sit down and read uh, Chopin or Mozart, but uh, I can read what's called a lead sheet, which is the, the the melody of the song and the chords above it, and turn that into something that sounds reasonably like something you would hear in a cocktail lounge
1: somewhere. And, and, and this experience must have informed uh, the writing of your novel, Violin Maker. I'm sure. Uh,
4: yes. Well, I should. I I, I don't mean to correct you but the both of those books are actually nonfiction books um they're they're not novels uh so the violin maker was uh came about in a very strange way it's 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 a weird publishing story and that that was my second book and uh, an editor who uh, had read my first book renovations which also was like a memoir a nonfiction memoir um Called me and said, "Oh, well, I wish I, I wish I could have done renovations, but I'd like you to do a book for me. I have a really nice cover illustration of a violin for a novel that I'm not going to be able to use, but I'd like to use the illustration. Would you want to write a book about a violin?" So, nice. She knew she knew I was a musician, and uh, and that was uh, she gave me some money to go out and hunt for a story, and uh, I did that and came back with a proposal, and we signed it up, and the idea was the, the craftsmanship involved in making a violin, and I found a very distinguished young violin maker here uh, in Brooklyn, New York, who's one of the top people in the, in the world at this point, and uh, did that book.
1: Well, I and I just want to say, just out of, uh, I guess, clarity of uh, the type of ignorance that I have, it's not, I, it's not that I didn't know they uh, were nonfiction. I didn't know that. I just thought... You could call a nonfiction book a novel. I thought there are nonfiction novels and there are fiction novels. That's my ignorance, not that I, that they. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> let's clarify my ignorance first of all. Okay,
4: I didn't, I didn't make up much in either of the books. I will say that.
1: Excellent. I, I read a, I didn't read either book, but I've read a bit about them. The one that fascinates me most, right off the bat. I mean, I think they're both fascinating stories that you went into, um, but. I guess the father-son relationship that uh, is rediscovered uh, in renovations. You know, I, I'm Italian-American as well, and I just project that maybe there was some stuff going on with you and your dad that probably would be going on with my dad and myself if we were in the same situation. So, how, how did that? How did that go when writing it? Was it was it a, a struggle in some ways?
4: It was a tough process. Yes, it. it uh... I came up with the idea It was something I just always wanted to do. And, uh, meaning, uh, the renovation we did was a, a house in the country up in Narrowsburg, New York. And, uh, I just got the idea at some point I had at that point, I was just about getting to be 40 years old. And I realized my father and I had done nothing together for decades. And, uh, and I thought this would be an interesting thing to do, and I just I felt like I was missing something. Everybody in my family was was blue collar. It was my father was a plasterer. My the other side of the family was this long range of plumbers, uh, electricians, telephone installers. As I say in the book, the 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 one relative, my uh, mother's brother, who became a state policeman. Uh, that was as if he had become, a, you know, a Rhodes Scholar and gone to Oxford, <laughs> and, and he was held up in in great esteem for having the what was considered a white collar job. Uh, and I just decided you know, that I'd like to learn how to do that stuff, and uh, I proposed the the idea to uh, my agent who had previously basically nixed every book idea I had, and he said, "Yeah, we we could sell that book," and and we did. so... So it was a weird situation in that I had the the assignment before I had the story. So then we just had to go out, and I had to do the story and uh, live and work with my father for. Uh, took us almost two years. He was at that time seventy-five years old. So work was, uh, you know, at his pace. So we, we and as they say about construction and renovation, everything takes takes twice as long as you expect.
1: So, yeah, you always stumble on things you didn't anticipate. Yes, and and did your dad? I I, I gather from reading some of the uh, the summary of the of the of the book, uh, he kind of thought it was humorous when he saw you at first with a tool belt on and, and you know getting he really had no experience in in this way at all.
4: Yes, uh, there, I mean there was a f- the family lore was that I had once hammered nails when I was five years old while they were working on some project renovating the house I grew up in, and that was the last time I held a hammer before this project and uh, he just couldn't believe that uh, anybody would want to do that and also be in any way capable of doing it because he had that very strong union outlook which is that you you apprenticed for so many years and then you were a journeyman and you learned the trade and you listened and you were browbeaten by your elders and obviously i had not had any of that experience we were just jumping into it together so he spent a lot of time browbeating me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I again I could I think I could relate. Uh yeah. and did did you two, I mean it's probably in the book, uh, but uh for our for our conversation, did did you guys uh sort of uh, delve into maybe issues in your relationship while working together uh that you know maybe were unresolved at that point?
4: Yeah, I think we we got to know one another better and I think probably accept one another more yet uh, one of the i don't know if it was one of the faults of the book uh, is that i couldn't honestly say that we had any great emotional breakthroughs that you would see in a movie you know and, and i should say that uh this book was that book was uh, commissioned around the time that the the blockbuster bestseller tuesdays with maury was was in everyone's head and i truly believe that the editors expected it to be a Tuesdays with Maury, where there would be these, uh, you know, I don't want to criticize the book, but there were very easy revelations and uh, uh, lessons learned. And uh, it wasn't easy with my father. You know, he was not forthcoming. Neither one of us is a terribly revealing emotional person. So essentially we lived through the first 20 years of my life again for the second 20 years and uh, in a way got to the same place yet because we were both older and more experienced we we realized okay th- you know this is who you are and this is who I am and we uh, we're, we're going to have to take it at that and,
1: and at the same time you actually discuss uh I guess pretty significantly some uh techniques and some approaches to to renovating a home in the book as well
4: yeah it was it was in no way a how to uh but uh, I couldn't help but talk about what I had learned in this process. And I did learn everything from, I did all the wiring, I did a fair bit of plumbing, uh, a lot of you know, floor repair, sheet rocking, taping, spackling, painting, you know, all the stuff we did a complete down to the you know, studs gut renovation. So we, I pretty much had to learn how to do everything. And uh, you know the odd side benefit of this is that while doing that, I ended up starting to write for This Old House magazine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Bob Villa.
4: Bob yeah. Villa. Uh, my father and I actually visited Bob Villa while I was working on the book, and uh, I wrote a profile of Bob for the New York Times uh, in the midst of doing the book, and they invited my father to come along. So,
1: he must have loved it. He must uh,
4: Yeah, he was. He was very funny. He was. You know, he was scared as a cat, of course, because he was. He, he wasn't used to meeting celebrities, but. We went up to Bob's place in Cape Cod and uh, had dinner there, and uh, and he and Bob actually hit it off quite well. You know, better than better than Bob and I hit it off certainly. But, um, <laughs>
1: yeah. And that that gives me a nice segue to the to the um, articles you write for uh, newspapers and magazines. You you have written and continue to write uh, for Philly Magazine. That's where you won your national magazine award, I believe. And uh, you write for the New York Times as well. On occasion, uh, so how, how do you see these as two separate worlds? When you of of writing in a way, when you write a book like *The Violin Maker* and renovations, and when when I, I look at the Philly magazine articles in particular, so many great uh, areas of focus. In, in uh, I mean, the many many articles that I've uh, that I was perusing. How I mean, how do you approach finding? these these areas of focus these topics are they given to you for by philly magazine or you just find them
4: in in recent years that's been my working arrangement with philadelphia magazine is that uh, i told them uh, just call me and tell me what you want me to write about and as long as i have any interest i'll do it um and I, i've actually found that to be uh, more enjoyable you know because the the ideas i used to always say that the uh, Somehow, I come up with ideas for non existent magazines. N- nothing I actually want to write about is something editors are interested in, so I just find it more uh, it- it's easier professionally to have the editor come to you with the idea because then you know they have a vested interest in it and uh, and I like that I, that uh, challenge of uh, you know having to become something of an instant expert on a, on a topic yeah.
1: would you would you uh, call it investigative journalism?
4: I no I don't I don't I would not flatter myself to say I'm an investigative reporter. I, I just I don't have that kind of drive to get underneath things and find uh whatever the controversial story or anything like that. I just uh, I I think of it more as explanatory. Uh you know, I, I try to portray the world that the person I'm writing about. And usually you end up writing about people in magazines like this. They become the focus of the story. So you learn as much about that person's world and try to portray it as accurately and as interestingly as you can. And, and that's, that's fun, and it's, it's, it's a challenge.
1: Well, you know, I, I have read a few of them. One in particular, uh, One City in Pennsylvania is Poised to Crush the 21st Century. And the way you open that up, I mean, it, it really is like reading a novel. You, you, uh, you, you set the scene beautifully, and, you know, you create a picture and an image uh, that is pretty pretty effective in, in getting the reader there engaged, and then you you share what's going on, my compliments and, and you know again it's 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 like I, I'm trying to understand what kind of writing it is. I think you're you're being modest in a way It, it is reporting yeah to a certain extent for sure, but there there's a narrative uh, that i that i that i'm I'm getting too.
4: Well, oh, thank you. That's uh, I'm flattered, and and if you know, I guess if I were to inflate it as much as I could, I guess there there is the common term creative nonfiction, and I I try to go into that area as much as I can, but uh, I I really don't consider. I mean, I, you know, I, the thing I always thought about music was that uh, doing music is basically a blue collar craft. You you work at it, you learn how to do it, and you go out and do it as best you can every day uh, that you do it. And uh, if the art happens, it happens. And I really think that writing is the same way. You just you you do your work, you do it as best as you can. And if somehow it becomes what what people think of as creative writing, then great. But you know um, the best you can do is to be a craftsman on your best day.
1: So you're, you're a craftsman in your own right. You talk about your, your ancestors being plumbers and carpenters and electricians, and, and you take the craft to the word, it seems. I try to. Yeah. <laughs> and and how did you get there? How did you find this for yourself?
4: Uh, well, when I was a musician full-time in, in Philadelphia, I was, uh, oh, I was, I guess, in my mid-twenties at the time, and... Uh, I was just starting to break into good work. I did a a month where I was very busy and had uh, good jobs. I uh, did a television opera that paid well because it was on television and this and that. And then the next month I had no work at all and no work for the month ahead. And and, uh, I happened to have a degree in journalism and I took a job writing and uh, that's, how it worked out you know i just, uh, I just uh, became a
1: writer so you had the degree and you needed to pay the bills and you figured hey this might be a more of a steady gig than find a musical endeavors yes
4: yes hmm. so yeah i, I uh, as i like to say uh, i'm probably the only person who ever got into writing for the money <laughs> and as and the old line in casablanca you know i was misinformed <laughs>
1: Uh, well, uh, it sounds like you're having fun at least, which is important.
4: It's fun. You know, you caught me on a day where I'm, I'm, I blew a deadline. I'm working on a story, uh, that's a quite complicated tale of, uh, one of the largest investment companies in the country. I don't know how, what made me accept the assignment. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling like, uh, I would rather you know, be doing almost anything else.
1: <laughs> one of those days. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I can relate. Uh, <laughs> And is this for a newspaper or a magazine?
4: It's for a magazine. Yeah. Uh, so it's a long piece, you know. It's a four thousand word assignment, and uh, it, it, I'm I'm squeezing out every word.
1: Yeah, yeah, four thousand words. That's kind of challenging, it is. Uh, and I'm 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 also uh, interested in talking a bit about the violin maker, many many more than uh, four thousand words. Uh, your other book, nonfiction. Book about as you mentioned earlier, the uh, the great uh, Brooklyn craftsman Sam and his last name. I you know it looks like a, a difficult Eastern European name. I don't know how to pronounce it. Could you help me out? Sure, it's
4: Zygmuntowicz.
1: Zygmuntowicz. Yes. And you follow him through the process of making a violin in the in the way of aspiring toward the great Stradivari.
4: Yes, we went through uh, literally f- from picking out the wood to the first performance of the on the violin, uh, which is a process that took about, oh, I think about six months, start to finish. Uh, and it, the commission was from a violinist named Eugene Drucker, who's a really fantastic violinist, and he's one of the founders of the Emerson String Quartet, which is a, is a highly regarded, multi-Grammy award-winning string quartet and Gene was playing on uh, a 1686 Stradivari instrument. Wow. So Sam had a real high challenge to to uh, do something that would make Gene like this new violin better than he liked the old one. And the the thing about violins, the, the, those old violins uh, among players who were traveling worldwide and frequently you know, going from one city to another doing concerts, they they get very fickle with the travel because the wood is so old and they've been used. And so uh, many of the players who have that kind of schedule, the, the dirty secret is that they're not really playing on their old violins often. They're they're playing on newer violins that uh, aren't so fickle because the, the, the shape of the violin can change. Jean told me the story of going from, I believe it was Montreal in August, where it was incredibly humid, and then they went to uh, Aspen, Colorado, where they were at high altitude and it was dry. And he said the the violin just choked. And they were doing recordings, and he said I, I couldn't play th- this violin. You know, that's how bad it was. Wow. Even though this was this is a violin that's valued at I'm sure three million dollars, and anyone else would covet being able to play that fiddle. But you know.
1: it's not uh, consistent whereas something newer would be in it. What kind of wood did you guys choose? What is the preferred
4: type? Uh, a violin is the, the, what's, what's called the belly, which is the top of the violin where the strings sit and the, the top is where the, that have the holes in them, what are called the F holes. Uh, that's always made of spruce because that's a, a sounding wood. It's, if, you, if you pick up a piece of spruce that's been made even before it becomes a violin, if you tap it, you'll hear tones. It, it's just a it's a sound uh, emanating piece of wood, and it's also very light and very strong, uh, and uh, so that's used for that. And the and the back of the violin is almost always maple, and that's more of a an appearance thing because you can find maple that's got incredible flame patterns and things like that, and it, and it just looks good and strong. So those are the two two woods that are usually used in violins.
1: You are listening to T&R with EWC on RFB, Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. And Eugene uh, Drucker was he satisfied?
4: Uh, no. <laughs> he, he never he never really took the violin uh, and it ended up going back to Sam Zygmuntovich has a basic, you know, you're, you guarantee your money back or exchange uh, policy so uh, Gene gave Sam that violin back and Sam gave him another one that he had made which was actually uh the the one he made for Gene was based on one model of violin and then the, the one he gave him was a little bit different model and he took to that much much better and uh but then, ironically, the the one that Sam made that Gene rejected ended up in the hands of uh, Joshua Bell, who is one of the you know, foremost violin soloists in the world right now. So, so it, it didn't go unused.
1: Oh, that's great! So Mr. Bell did appreciate the way it sounded. It did yes. work for him.
4: Yes, and Josh Bell has one of the most famous uh, Stradivari violins there are. So you know, he he had a a good comparison
1: point. And you you you. Uh went with Sam back to Cremona, Italy, where uh, Stradivari was from, right, I, I gather? Yes, uh, yes. And uh, why, why did you do that? Any particular reason, just symbolically? It, it just or? seemed
4: like, yes, it seemed like, uh, obviously when you're, again, going back to just the nuts and bolts of writing, you, you just need scenes. And I thought that this was a great scene to go back to Cremona and see what was going on there. And, and... Um, Mussolini was actually a, a fiddle buff, and uh, under his regime, they, they started a school of violin making in Cremona, which exists still. So considering uh, Cremona is a pretty small town, and I think maybe uh, 80 or 100,000 people, it's rural, it's known as a cheese-making center, um, but they, have, they produce many violin makers there, and uh, a lot of them stay. Like, there's probably more violin makers in Cremona Per capita than any other place in the world, and uh, it's 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 kind of a fascinating little hot house place because yeah. of that.
1: And now we could say Mussolini made the trains run on time and also built a nice uh, uh, violin scene in Cremona. That's yes, <laughs> you can you can give him credit
4: for two things.
1: <laughs> uh... And uh, that this this novel, The Violin Maker, or novel, excuse me, I correct myself again. I learned something from you today. I've learned a lot of things, but that one in particular, I think I've been misusing that word for years, and no one ever knew to tell me, or no one ever knew. Uh, so thanks for that. But it's received a lot of critical praise. The New York Times, Newsweek, USA Today, Publishers Weekly, and so on. Uh, how does that feel?
4: Oh, it's great. But uh, you know, the, it doesn't help you write
1: the next one. But, uh, Are you working on one?
4: Eh, well, no, not at this point. I have uh, spent some time coming up with ideas, and uh, in you know, in the time since I wrote the violin maker, the publishing world has changed quite a bit. And uh, uh, you it's know, about I, eight I years,
1: had, right? About eight years. Yeah, or so.
4: about a year, eight. Yeah, coming up on ten, even. And in that time, I have spent a good deal of time researching ideas, and I'll, you know, a couple times I bring them to my agent, and my agent just says, uh you know, great idea, but I, I can't sell it. Uh, you know, things are different now. People aren't willing to give money, because, the, the, I mean, the books I've done have demanded a f- fair amount of research and time, and uh, so unless, I, I unfortunately don't have a trust fund, so I need to have something to allow me to spend that time and, and live while i research the book so, uh, you have to depend on the kindness of strangers who happen to be your publisher
1: right right and and i guess that's where the the magazines or the philadelphia magazine seems like a pretty steady gig that comes in handy and uh the news i guess the new york times as well uh, and a few other periodicals you write for um the piece that you mentioned earlier which i guess will keep a secret until it's published uh is that the way to go the,
4: yeah, yeah. It's, it's no sense mentioning anything specific about it right now.
1: And, well, you got you got me curious. So, uh, if folks want to uh, look and fi- find some of your work, how would they do that, Mr. Marques?
0: Well,
4: unfortunately, I'm I'm not that uh, the 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 idea of uh, you know. Branding yourself and doing that and promoting is, is not something I do very well, so I don't have a website and uh, or anything like that So you, you just kind of have to look around obviously if you google my name There are a number of things come up and and the, the Philadelphia magazine website if you go there PhillyMag.com, And just put my name into the search engine. It will probably churn out most of the articles I've written for them in the last uh, whatever eight or ten years uh, same with the New York Times if you just did you know, John Marchese it would, it would put out probably everything I've done there and that goes back to 1992 I think
1: Yeah, you have, you have a pretty impressive body of work and uh, I wish you continued success with uh, your, your books and uh, the pieces you're doing for the various periodicals you've been working with and the 4000 p- word piece that you're working on now, good luck with that Thank you.
4: If you could help me with the ending, I would appreciate it.
1: Yeah, if you want to talk off off uh, air about it, I doubt I can help you at all. But I'd be, you know, I'd be I'd be pleased if I w- if I were able to. Um, <laughs> and the holidays are coming up. Any thoughts about the holidays? You have uh, anything uh, to share with the listeners?
4: No, I'm I'm actually just uh, deciding whether to come out to Scranton for the holidays.
1: Really. Um,
4: Yes, I actually am inheriting a house in Dunmore from my last living relative. My father's youngest brother died recently. So, uh, I may be a part-time resident of Dunmore in the near future.
1: That's crazy. That's but the house
4: needs. Here's the irony of it. The house needs a fair bit of renovation.
1: (laughs) Well, you're (laughs) an expert. Here we go again. (laughs) Yeah. You're an expert now. You can, (laughs) well, I, you'll be in my hometown. So that's, that's where I was born and raised and, uh, and that's where I live now, too. So, when you're in town, maybe we can cross paths and, and uh, share some holiday cheer.
4: I would I would really love to do that. I hear there's some good Italian restaurants there.
1: There are a few, yeah. There are. <laughs> I I appreciate you taking the time out to share a bit of uh, what's going on and, and uh, your thinking regarding writing and music and such on uh, troubadours and rock on tours. John Marchese.
4: Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. I hope I was helpful.
1: Oh, you were. A very, very interesting and, and enjoyable conversation. And again, I hope I see you over the holidays. Same here. Take care. Have a good one. Bye now.
5: Globe. Everyone in my depressed former coal town shopped at the Globe. It was one of the two main downtown department stores, Macy's to the Oppenheim stores, Gimbel's. Everyone worked at the Globe at one time or another, or had a relative who worked there, just as nearly everyone worked at, or was related to someone who worked at, the town's correspondence school or munitions plant just as, in times past, everyone, the males at least, worked in the mines. Everyone of a certain age is nostalgic for the globe, with its elaborate and fondly recalled Christmas window displays, and its Monday money savers and Wednesday specials, and the Charlemont restaurant with the roast beef and Virginia ham carving stations and tall Texan ice cream floats a mother could spend a day with her children, mine did, with successive children as time passed, browsing the departments, searching for deals, and dining in the restaurant, perhaps having some of that freshly carved roast beef and mashed potatoes, or a chicken salad sandwich with rice pudding for dessert. Then mother and child would head home to spend the late afternoon watching Dark Shadows or Match Game, or Gilligan's Island. And a father might take some time to buy a new hat in the men's department, and then go to the adjacent Hotel German lobby, where he could have his dusty wingtips buffed at the shine station, or splurge on a trim and a shave at the barber shop. Then, Barbasol scented, he might go next door to the Manhattan room, with its Art Deco design, "'and mural of the Manhattan skyline behind the bar. "'He might linger and have another highball "'and then reluctantly turn return home "'to see what his wife bought at the Globe. "'Like everyone, I worked at the Globe, "'in the inventory department. "'We were a small, scrappy crew, "'headquartered in a dingy, dusty room on a top floor, "'far from the fancy displays downstairs.' The mainstays were middle aged women. Smart Helen, a witty, single woman, who in another time might have become a journalist or a professor or run her own business, but instead cared for her widowed mother, never married, and worked at the store her entire life. Dumb Helen, who was lucky to have a job, complained constantly, was also single and amusing in her own way. Mary, Another smart lady who sang in a Welsh choir and had a fella. Stanley, our kind and put upon boss, headed the department. He had to deal with demands and complaints from the owners, the department heads, his inventory ladies, and his wife, as well as the persistent pain of his hemorrhoids, which consumed as much of his mental energy as the inventory of the store. And there were the short-timers, who blew in for a couple of months, miscounted the merchandise, and stumbled on to another temporary job. Like Kevin, for example, who proudly showed us his girlfriend's portfolio in which, clad in a not-too-flattering two-piece bathing suit, she stood holding gigantic model airplanes. As his contribution to the inventory team, he regularly graced us with a dead-on impersonation of Curly, "'from the Three Stooges. "'You, of course, remember the immortal scene "'in which Curly bites into a grenade, "'thinking it's a pineapple. "'Kevin nailed Curly's pineapple. "'I was a short-timer, as was my friend Mian. "'We counted everything. "'We counted furniture at the warehouse "'in a neighboring borough, up on a ladder, "'counting couches and end-tables "'and ottomans and lamps.' We counted clothes, trousers and shirts and ties, skirts and blouses and scarves. We counted lipsticks and perfumes and wallets and belts. We counted watches and necklaces and rings. We counted shoes, brogues and pumps and sandals and slippers. We counted braziers and slips and panties, or rather, miscounted. Because when you're counting panties, either on the busy sales floor Distracted by customers and comely salesgirls, or in a stuffy stockroom, bored and yearning for lunch, you have a tendency to miscount. We counted the entire store, and then we started over. My friend Meehan was a master at avoiding work, much to the chagrin of dumb Helen and the amusement of smart Helen and Mary. He taught me that you could go anywhere if you carried a clipboard with confidence. So after a mid-morning snack of a roll fresh from the store's bakery, we cruised the globe. We, or rather he, chatted up sales girls, department by department. He swapped jokes, usually topical and occasionally painful, with fellow employees also avoiding work. He caged discounts or freebies "'from the poor albino who managed the record department. "'The man's vision was so bad "'that he would practically have to press the albums against his face "'to read the covers. "'We stopped by the pet shop, "'where a pretty, bird-like girl sold noisy parakeets "'and bewildered turtles and doomed goldfish. "'Eventually we returned to our crew "'in the miscounting of more merchandise, "'plotting our next chance to flee.'" The globe closed years ago, famously locking out its employees when it did. Last year, the building, in the middle of its many transformations, briefly opened its cavernous first floor to a Christmas market. Our townsfolk flocked to the market, trying, vainly, to find that glorious store of their youth and their memories.
1: Chestnut, with the violin on my shoulder, feeling sort of older, and the bow echoes coal train-esque, soulful, as the stained cut of the old chestnut wood floor holds my creaking weight solidly, and the crisp November air coats the evergreens outside my window with a vibrant energy eternal.
0: this stuff.
1: Habits, episode 246 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks that made this episode possible. First and foremost, writer and artesian at heart, John Marchese. i also like to thank Uncle Cesare a.k.a. Dr. Michael Pavis, our associate producer and resident essayist, for another beautiful essay. I also like to thank these musical artists, Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grapelli, Sharon Jones and Dap Kings, Eileen Jewell, Joshua Bell and... Mr. Vivaldi. Billy Holiday. The Doors as well. Of course Terence Blanchard and Branford Marsalis too. Until next week. Enjoy this one. Thanks for listening.